0: All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Maureen Conway. I'm a vice president at the Aspen Institute and executive director of the Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's book talk on The Alternative, uh, How to Build a Just Economy by Nick Romeo. Saying it right, awesome. Um, uh, So really pleased to see folks here today. And I know we have a a good online audience as well. Um, This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing uh, Opportunity in America discussion series in which we uh, discuss the landscape of economic opportunity primarily in the United States, although we may venture abroad today, Uh, implications for individuals, families, and communities across the country, and ideas for change. Uh, So thanks to everybody for joining us today. Um, And if this is your first time with us, we do record all of our events and post them on our website. Um, So if you'd like to check any of them out, you can find them at as.pn slash EOP events. And it's I know we have lots of folks joining us online today, uh, so uh, let me do a quick little review of the technology for them uh, before we begin. Um, So all of our online attendees are muted. We welcome your questions. Please use the Q&A box on your screen. Um, We have a couple colleagues here in the room who will share your questions, so please do um, submit your questions. We like to get as many audience questions as we can. Um, We also encourage folks to to share their views. Uh, We know lots of folks in our audience do work in this space, so if you have ideas, examples of things that you're working on or resources to share, please share those in the chat. let's see what else Uh, we also appreciate uh, feedback please take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey uh, which will pop up as you leave the session you can also email us your thoughts at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org we also encourage you to post about this conversation on your preferred social media platform our hashtag all across the social mediaverse is talk opportunity If you have any technical issues during this webinar you can put a note in the chat or email us. Again the address is eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Closed captions are available for the discussion. Please use the CC button at the bottom of the video to activate closed captions. Okay, that ends the technical note. Um, So I'm so thrilled to welcome Nick today to the Aspen Institute to uh, talk about ideas for building a just economy. So, as some of you may know, the mission of the Aspen Institute is to further a more free, more just, and more equitable society. And from the earliest days at the Aspen Institute, one of the ways we've done that is by bringing diverse people together in dialogue um, uh, to, to think, to consider what are the values that are, that are guiding society. Um, and one of one of the, the methods for doing that was to bring people into sort of text based dialogues and have them think th- about some of the the texts from Plato and Aristotle and uh, maybe from Martin Luther King and, and Jane Jacobs to uh, to, uh, to other contemporary authors. So really across across a long span, um, bringing together different uh, different authors and really thinking about sort of some of the philosophical underpinnings that that guide us. Um, So it's really a pleasure to welcome somebody who starts his book with quotes from uh, Tolstoy and Aristotle to our stage. So you fit right in. Um, But more importantly, it's great to to welcome an author who uh, really does bring a values-based lens to his writing and to our discussions of the economy and to consider the moral and ethical implications of economic decisions. Um, And I really appreciated in in the introduction you wrote Tolstoy, like Keynes, recognized the major topics of economics are inescapably moral and political. And at the very conclusion of the introduction, you note, fundamental to all these different initiatives is a deeper shift in our very notion of the economy, from an impersonal sphere of abstract forces best governed by technocrats into a human arena of ethical decisions with the highest imaginable stakes. This shift, which both Tolstoy and Keynes would understand, is perhaps the most basic precondition for creating a more just economy. So I just loved that because I just loved how you centered sort of the, the human dimension in this and the human implications. The Institute was founded as the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies and uh, again, it's just a perfect fit. So. Um, so now that I've said my little bit, um, maybe you can uh, introduce yourself and and just tell us a little bit about how you came how you came to write this book and what you know brought you to this topic.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate the introduction and the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate everyone coming out today. I'm glad it's not pouring, and thanks to everyone who joined online. You know, in terms of how I came to write the book, um, I'll give sort of. Two types of answers one is just professional I, I was lucky enough to have a somewhat long leash from my editor at The New Yorker who who let me explore in a series of articles over the past several years compelling initiatives and ideas from r- really around the world i was I was living overseas for for my wife's research she's an archaeologist who works in the Mediterranean so it was convenient to be in Europe. I did a lot of the reporting overseas although there's also a strong American component to the book um, sort of zooming out one level from the professional kind of, my background is, is, is in philosophy and I am very interested in a lot of the texts and authors you, you cited. You know, one of the key insights that is not original to me, but that I, I kind of advance in the book, especially in the first chapter, is that economics used to be considered kind of a branch of political philosophy. The older name for the field was political economy. Um, and, you know, this tradition is not by any means gone, but it is a little bit uh, under the weather, I guess you could say. And so trying to sort of champion and rehabilitate that older way of thinking about economics where you know it's not a rejection of quantitative modeling and mathematics. These are very powerful and useful tools, but it's more a recognition of the inescapably moral and political dimensions of all sorts of economic behaviors and even the kind of categories of statistics and measurement. All of these things are Hard to really talk about without first discussing values and visions of what. What do we mean by um, a good life, a fair society, etc.? Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: great. I, I love that. My my own education resembles that, but that's a story for another time. Um, so I uh, would love to to dig in a little more on this question of sort of economic frameworks that that guide our understanding of the economy and and the and. And you know th- like challenging this idea of the economy as this sort of separate thing that's that's disconnected from our our political and moral choices. and um, one of the things you describe is sort of how there's folks trying to trying to change that maybe a little bit in 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 a- how we learn economics and connecting it, connecting the pieces a little bit more. So can you describe this like kind of what you were um, thinking about with that with the battle for academia like how it What's happening there that, that might be changing? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the first chapter in the book kind of digs into this ongoing battle for the Econ 101 class and the, the textbook itself. What's at stake in the curriculum? How should it be taught? Um, what should be taught? You know, one person I, I quote in that chapter is Paul Samuelson, who kind of famously remarked, I don't care who writes a nation's laws if I get to write its economics textbooks. Um, so he did get to write the economics textbooks sure. for a lot of the 20th century. Yeah. His book was the book. It was assigned, widely read. Um, it was also controversial. There was a sort of pendulum that swung back and forth. In the 50s he was accused of communism. Um, <laughs> there was a campaign to get him off the curriculum at MIT and, and elsewhere. But, you know, By the 70s he was sort of seen as part of the status quo, very conservative, just kind of an apologist for, for full-throated capitalism. So, Yeah, I think Samuelson is on to something when he he makes that remark. It might strike us as a bit sinister, but there's a lot at stake in sort of shaping cultural common sense. You know, I I try to excavate an even older tradition of appealing to natural laws to justify the economic status quo. So there's this rhetorical maneuver whereby you kind of compare the economy to um, the natural world and then you can naturalize all sorts of things. So David Ricardo, early political economist in the 19th century sort of scornfully dismissed any attempts to help people with lower incomes and said this was sort of just as naive as opposing the force of gravitation. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said the results are just as certain as if you opposed gravitation. Even that (laughs) metaphor, you can trace. I find someone in the early 20th century saying the same thing. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm drawing on a lot of historians who who know this subject much better than I do. But then, you know, move into the 21st century, and, and you still see this in the popular media. You'll see, you know, wealth distribution is inevitably following a sort of decreasing exponential curve and if you choose this um, or sorry if you oppose this you're opposing the inevitable so the kind of gravitation physical law metaphor lurks in the background and it's just it's a way of kind of presenting as naive and idealistic anyone who would like to see something different of course there's another tradition and a lot of the first chapter is arguing for people who see economics as a branch of political philosophy. They might not phrase it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, one is like the economist Ha-Joon Chang says, no. economics is just one long political argument. I also quote Keynes. Um, Keynes famously remarked that the, the master economist sort of has four components. He must be in part mathematician, historian, statesman, and philosopher. So the the mathematician thing is is very pronounced in the way economists are educated. I, I, I quote one person who compares the use of math in the subject today to um, masturbation in the monastery <laughs> was his metaphor. <laughs> he asked not to be named so you can not <laughs> be able to find his name in the book. Suffice to say he's a very senior and respected <laughs> economist. Um, not a particularly heterodox or radical one either, but very frustrated with this sort of abstraction away from both kind of that, the actual empirics of institutions and, and human nature and i think beyond that uh, there's a, a frustration there with a, a kind of disconnect from a lot of the the moral and political implications of how economic models get used so i'll i'll pause there
0: yeah yeah no i think that that's great i mean i think that this issue of sort of the the technical experts is one i mean, i was thinking when you were talking about some of the um, arguments. Also, there are the religious arguments of the poor will always be with us, and you know, yeah. right that that kind of thing. So, um, but how do you think we should argue against this kind of sort of like fatalistic argument backed up with numbers? Um, like, do you have any thoughts about that in terms of how we think about data and numbers versus narrative and story to kind of reframe our understanding of of not just what's of um, I guess of economic dynamics, but of our own agency like to to make change, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, there's a quick anecdote in in the book where a student at University College London is in a discussion section and they are interested in the question of equality and inequality. And so they ask the teaching assistant, um, you know, what are the data telling us about the ideal Gini coefficient, which is just an index of inequality. And you know, to the credit of the TA, their, their answer was, well, you know, that's not something the data can answer. It's a normative question. We have to have an ethical conversation. Now, I think some people hear that and that, you know, it, automatically they sort of leap to the other extreme. They say, well, anything that's ethical or normative is just kind of inherently subjective and kind of imponderable. And they think about people, you know, strumming guitars and smoking pot and just, you know, <laughs> the sort of stereotype of the college philosophy major. One economist, I quote, um, who has helped to triple the number of humanities courses that econ students in Chile are taking at his university, he was like very clear in rejecting this. He's like, it's not that we're getting rid of math, we're actually just saying you need math and you need history and you need philosophy and you need ethics. And we're going to try to arrive at compelling answers. It's actually a way of increasing the complexity and increasing the subtlety. Um, I'm not sure I quite answered your question, which I do have some <laughs> thoughts on the like the rhetorical strategy of data yeah. versus narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in a sense, that was like on my mind throughout writing the book, right? Yeah. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data, as the old <laughs> saying goes, right? You can't just kind of cherry pick a few good stories. Um, at the same time, to sort of push back on that, like anecdotes and stories are processed psychologically very different than data. And it's very easy to drift into a kind of, Uh, dehumanized mindset if you're only looking at data and you have no sense of what it means to humans who are struggling to pay the rent etc etc so a lot of the the book is kind of my attempt to find a balance where both of these things matter
0: yeah great so that takes us nicely to digging into kind of a particular term that's been banding about a lot which is sort of the idea of a living wage right which i think is uh like got a lot of math to it, but also a lot of sort of moral judgment to it. So talk a little bit about how you think about the term and uh, how it's been used and and what what your thoughts are and how it could be used.
1: Sure. So, you know, in in the chapter on living wages, I, I try to champion a perspective that is nicely exemplified by some of the early 20th century progressive leaders, Theodore Roosevelt, Samuel Gompers, um, the the Catholic priest who coins, or at least popularized the term in America, John Ryan. And the, the components of living, like you mentioned, are and, and like the student in London realized, are, are not something that you're going to just get out of a data set. It's going to depend on what we mean by living. Should people earning a living wage get to eat in the restaurant, go on vacation, save for retirement, have a little bit put aside for a rainy day fund for accidents? Um, I think intuitively, if you ask people about living, Um, a lot of people would think that, yes, living involves those things. It involves occasional nice things. You get to have ice cream with your kid. Maybe you get to send your kid to a summer camp. Maybe you get to go on vacation. Um, Since that time period, over a century ago, I think we've we've sort of had a constriction of our moral imagination. We've had a a wonderful kind of increase in our skill to gather real-time data about cost of living, segmented by location, by family composition, and there are multiple tools that let people look at that and calculate a living wage. But there's a prior question about what we mean by living. And so I kind of argue for the revival of this older conception, a more generous conception um, that encompasses, I think, education, retirement, savings for a rainy day, and more of the kind of leisure activities. So that's... Going to be a much higher figure, even than what is currently called a living wage, and that figure is much, much higher than what is mostly paid in millions and millions of jobs throughout our economy in every state. So
0: yeah, yeah. So I was going to say because yeah, I do think you you take my friend Amy Glassmeyer a little bit to task on her her definition of living, um, but I think it is. I mean, this is a question, right? As we're trying to think about how we move more people to a, a, a this sort of standard um it's sort of where we're starting and where we're trying to get people to go the gulf is just enormous so um yeah so i guess i'm i'm just uh um sort of somewhat sympathetic of not uh of how how living wage has been uh defined i guess in in that sense in terms of like trying to encourage people to start raising wages um, and maybe make it less daunting. But I guess what I wanted, wanted to ask about that is sort of like, because as you know, she has made changes in terms of expanding what it, what it mm-hmm. means and sort of how do you think about striking that balance between sort of having the expansive kind of definition that you want versus having something that seems like somebody could make progress towards that. so it starts to encourage action. So I'm trying to get this balance between sort of like theory and actually getting somebody to do something.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly sensitive to the sort of challenges of getting people to do things. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's a fair point. And, you know, part of, I guess, part of my intervention is a matter of nomenclature. I think if you call something living and what it really means is like just not quite dying, like barely subsisting, <laughs> that's misleading. You're not actually able living in a kind of standard understanding of the term. Amy herself admits this mm-hmm. on, on yep. some of the hidden documentation with, if you poke through her website or if you chat with her, she'll, she'll say this. And, you know, yep. she did recently expand the categories somewhat to include this civic engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's still so far from what was kind of a standard plank of, of many progressive leaders a century ago. Um, part of it's a question of framing. You know, if you're, if your comparison is to the federal minimum wage, then it can look pretty good. If your comparison is what to what like we mean when we say like someone has a decent living wage, I think it's it's very far away. Um, one other thought on this same topic is that you know for folks who actually are paying what you might call like a true living wage, something well above what what her and other calculators would would generate. It's a little hard for them to distinguish themselves, right it's It's the kind of um, the greenwashing challenge where if we have no s- sort of way to signal who within a category is actually exemplifying the best of that category, then you, you you're kind of letting a lot of other people free ride and call themselves living wage employers when um, that's sort of debatable at best,
0: okay, yeah. so all right, then we'll just move right on in terms of like this signaling, what are you doing kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Because then you go on to to, true prices. And this is interesting. I didn't really know a lot about true prices. Um, And I don't know how many folks here are familiar with true prices and the true price movement. So maybe you could just describe that and how that might sort of um, lift up some of these kinds of costs that are hidden in terms of like Low wages and things sure. like that in terms of our the goods we buy.
1: Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I have a chapter in the book on true prices. True pricing is sometimes you know assimilated to a broader family of accounting techniques. True cost accounting might be more familiar. Um, it's it's quite popular in Amsterdam and, and in Europe more broadly. The basic idea, you know, if you think about a product, um, it really could be any product, but grocery store is easy to to sort of think with. So if you think about something you buy, we could call it an apple, um, maybe the apple's organic, but this gives you no visibility into carbon footprint, right? It could have been flown halfway around the world depending on the season and where you are. Um, okay, so let's say then you have some sort of way to signal a carbon footprint. That's good. But then that would still give you no visibility into how the workers are treated. Did they have the right to unionize? Um, Did they have bathroom breaks? Were they sexually harassed? Did they earn a living wage? So if you think about all of these kind of patchwork of labels, many of which are heavily influenced by industry lobbying, largely sort of self-policed, self-reported, the idea of true pricing is to say, what if all of those things could be indicated through a single number, the true price of a product? So it's this kind of wildly ambitious but also highly econometric goal. Like, let's actually use the price mechanism to take what are normally called externalities, the unpriced costs of economic transaction, let's internalize them. Multiple ways you could do that. You could have a consumer-facing iteration where people are asked to pay more. There are grocery stores now in Amsterdam where you can do this. You could also have it as a kind of internal auditing tool. Um, One company I write about in the book is Tony's Mm -hmm. Chocolate Company. They have used true pricing basically to improve the human rights but also environmental impacts throughout their supply chain. Um, You know, chocolate often involves, if not human slavery, a lot of forced labor. So that's that's a really valuable initiative. A third way, and maybe the most promising, is that it can shape legislation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like supply chain due diligence laws where, you know, these are being considered at a European Union level such that if you actually find within your supply chain or someone can show that within your supply chain there are certain human rights violations, you could be materially liable. Um, the broadest kind of most philosophical framing for that chapter is just when we say externality, what do we mean by that? Um, you know, so I, I'm currently based in Berkeley, California. There's a popular bumper sticker, which is something to the effect of when you throw something away, what do you mean by away, right? (laughs) And I think even if you're not from Berkeley, you can kind of appreciate the intuition. When we say external, we're really usually talking about humans somewhere far away, maybe humans in the future, maybe the natural world. But is it reasonable and fair to externalize these costs? True pricing kind of proposes a mechanism for internalizing more of those.
0: Yeah. 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 Cool. So um, I'm wondering just with that, like, because so the true and you get to this with the with the regulation. So there's I guess two things. One, you didn't mention too much about sort of consumer just awareness of these costs, like, and and what role you think that might play in this. Yeah. And also for the stores that were trying to like use true prices to sort of you know lift up consumer awareness and 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 maybe give them the choice to pay at the true cost. Um, like what was the, how did that influence consumer behavior? Like.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I have some sort of information and data on that in the chapter. Um, There's sort of a few scenarios you can imagine. One is that people are just not willing to pay the higher prices. So if you had a sort of side-by-side option, people would differentially not pay the true price. it doesn't seem like that's necessarily the case. There was a kind of consciousness raising campaign by a German supermarket where they were not actually charging the true prices. They were just showing them side by side. So you know they would do this for for meat, for dairy, um, for vegetables. And you know, there can be wildly different markups. Like a true price premium can be much, much higher for some things than others. And then they they sort of collected surveys on willingness to pay versus, like, in what scenario would you be willing to pay the higher price versus in what scenario would you just shift your consumption? Um, Either way, this could be helpful, right? I mean, if people pay a higher true price and then you have some kind of targeted remediation mechanism such that, like, the markup for every additional dollar that's charged is going to um, hopefully a very empirically proven climate solution, hopefully to wage augmentation for those workers who actually grew the product, then, you know, if people pay the higher price, you're generating funds to solve the problems involved in creating the product. Um, But you're also creating an incentive for companies to try to change their practices, right? Invest in more efficient transportation. You're motivating farmers to husband resources more carefully, especially water, um, toxic chemicals. Like, if all of these things are just going to make your products enormously more expensive, decrease your market share, most people would change the way they're producing, yeah. I think that's the hope, yeah
0: yeah, and i I was also wondering what um effect it might have on in terms of people's you know be, behavior and support for certain kinds of legislation right I mean because there's yeah. some of the things right and and you you write about this, like do we really want to put a price on sort of child slavery, do we really want right. to put these things you know or do we want to just say no right and yeah. but you know, to just say, no, you have to have legislation and you have to have en- enforcement mechanisms that actually work and that you invest Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. so, so any connection in on that front? Do you see any connection with that?
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's a great question. And I, I should be very clear that the the founders of the True Price organization in Amsterdam are pretty unambiguously opposed to a cost-benefit analysis in which you can kind of put on one side of an equation like – the utility that consumers derive from cheap chocolate bars, and then on the other side you can say, the downside of human slavery, and you kind of make up numbers on both sides of the equation and somehow say, okay, it's fine, like, no worries, right? We can just <laughs> continue with, with this. Maybe they cost a little more of the chocolate bars. Like, the human rights framework disallows on principle um, certain violations, namely those that are enshrined in universal conventions and statements of human rights. Yeah. That being said, you know, the way to enforce that is legislative, right? It's not through a kind of consumer-facing market-friendly solution in which you just hope for the best and rely on nudges and incentives. You need a kind of categorical binding legislation. So I think they'd be fully on board with that claim, as would I. Okay, Um,
0: Great. So I, I want to go on to one of the next things you talk about. I, f- I thought this was really interesting. Um, I did this project a few years ago with a bunch of colleagues, and, and one of my colleagues wrote a paper on the value of a job guarantee. So I was mm-hmm. glad to see you looking at the the uh, idea of a job guarantee, but you weren't looking in the U.S. You were in Austria. So yeah. <laughs> um so, you know, and, and, I th- and I thought it was interesting how you framed this, right? because it, it, you started with sort of like, what does work mean for people? And, and I hear people in the U.S. kind of talk about the, the dignity of work, but they don't, you know, they, it's, it's, they, don't, they don't go where you went with it. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you could um, talk about sort of what you, what you learned there uh, sure. in terms of both the value of work uh, for humans and, and also the potential of a job guarantee.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have a chapter in the book that focuses on a really interesting job guarantee pilot in a small town outside of Vienna, Austria. Um, it's actually the site of a really famous study in the 1930s where some sociologists looked at how unemployment affected people. And you know a lot of what they found is that it's, it's pretty devastating. Even if you are able to maintain a kind of basic standard of material, um, Sus- sustenance, right? Like the the psychological impacts, the social impacts, the the way you view yourself—all of these impacts were, I think, in a really deep way, um, not well understood before this study, and much better understood. Of course, you know, there's similar research in America during the Great Depression. In the new trial, basically, they go back to the same town and they say, "What if anyone who wants a job can have one?" And yet, no one is forced to take it. So it's important to distinguish it from a kind of workfare policy where you're compelled to take whatever comes along. Um, everyone in the program who's been unemployed for a certain period of time is eligible to join, but no one has to. This is kind of an interesting design feature. Mm-hmm. And then, if you do join, you actually design the work kind of in collaboration with social workers and with you know thinking both about the needs of the community, but also about your own needs and interests. So there's a effort to kind of marry what has to get done in a certain place with what do people want to do and what mm-hmm. do they feel like they're good at doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was fascinating to spend some time with both the participants in this job guarantee and the economists who are studying it. And, you know, I think it speaks again to a broadened conception of economics, where if you care about psychological outcomes and impacts, um, it's a little hard to to see what's not likeable about a program, especially because this program in Austria was kind of explicitly designed to cost no more than what unemployment benefits cost anyway. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of preempting the objection, oh, we can't afford it. It's like, well, we would have been spending this anyway, but now we're actually seeing all of these rich indications of time structure, self-esteem, community. All of these things, at least as reported by folks in the study, are much, much higher.
0: I think I thought it was so interesting, just that just that most people chose to have a job, right? Like given the choice. I mean that again contravenes the sort of standard economic assumption that if you'll just give me the money and I don't have to work, then I'll take that rather than actually doing something. That wasn't what they found. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. that was super interesting. Um, Okay, so you have I'm I can't go through every chapter here, uh, but you go through um, a lot of different ideas. You talk about. this uh, effort out in Long Beach to sort of uh, regularize gig work and make that make that that work um, more sort of. Um, uh something you can count on more stable more and, and pathways to sort of advancement if you, if you want them and sort of as you know sort of have a gig work platform as a public utility which is kind of interesting um, you look at the issue of public budgeting and public engagement and budgeting and kind of you know how that that can be an influence you dig in on ownership which is something we've thought about here a lot and look at sort of various kinds of ways people can uh participate in ownership of companies esops co-ops Work, um, uh, uh, employee ownership trusts. Um, you look at perpetual purpose trusts and some of the things that they can do. So there's there's lots of stuff that you cover. There's lots of stuff he covers in this book. So, um, so I'm just wondering if you want to share, and I'm going to come to folks for questions, so just, you know, start getting ready. Um, I'm just wondering if you want to share a couple of stories that were, or a couple of people that were just pre- really meaningful to you and that, you know, continue to sort of resonate with you and you think about?
1: Sure. So, two come right to mind. Um, one with a DC connection. So, there's a cleaning company in this area called Well-Paid Maids that I write oh, yeah, about yeah. in the Living Ways chapter. Yeah. He um,
0: in Tacoma Park. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, okay, great.
1: <laughs> so, so the, the founder of this is is a millennial named Aaron Sayedion, mm-hmm. and um, I, I found Chatting with him and also with some of some of his staff very very compelling I mean he he sort of started the company almost as an explicit intervention into these living wage debates so as a kind of living refutation of the idea that paying living wages renders a business non-competitive mm-hmm. um, he has year after year growth huge huge numbers of people on waiting lists it's a real success story um, and he also promotes internally so he'll he'll have people starting out cleaning and then within a few years maybe making $60,000, $70,000, running operations. Um, Very, very impressed by his work. One other who actually is an alum of an Aspen program is um, a retiring CEO of a optics firm in upstate New York called Optimax, Rick Rick Plimpton. You know, so I I actually start the book with a, a story from Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need, which is this kind of Beautiful, powerful, moral fable about acquisitiveness and morality. So just chatting with Rick, it was wonderful to kind of hear an echo of this in conversation with him. You know, he was thinking about what to do when he retired. He'd seen offshoring in Rochester take places like companies like Kodak mm-hmm. Kodak Overseas. Very much wanted to keep good jobs in Rochester. He has a very generous profit-sharing plan with employees. Um, was concerned that if he just sold to the highest probably private equity bidder, um, who knows what happens in right. five, ten years, right? Mm-hmm. So his comment, though, I thought was fascinating. He said something to the effect of, you know, if, if I took the highest possible bid, which would probably have been well over a hundred million, um, I would have spent my retirement basically just doing money management,
2: you know, because <laughs> if, I, if I
1: took a more gradual payout, um, he actually ended up transitioning to an ownership trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll still have more than enough money. This kind of, this kind of truly internalized sense of, well, how much land does a man need? Right. I mean, <laughs> we're not talking about land, we're talking about equity shares in a company, but it's like, enough is enough. I want to do other things in my retirement. You yeah. Know? So I thought that was a very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Pro-social remark. Yeah. It,
0: yeah, it was. Yeah. You know what, actually, so, so Rick Plimpton is actually was a uh, job quality fellow with us and is somebody we've done we've done a lot of work with and what's interesting about it too is after he sort of did the whole conversion to an employee ownership trust and you know sort of told his business customers and this kind of thing it's actually led to a greater growth because they have more confidence that optimax is going to be there and going to be there for the long haul as they're mm. doing their business so it's 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 worked out well for the business as well so mm. one of those nice examples um Great. So I, I have actually, I will say, a list of questions that people submitted ahead of time, which I can refer to. But looking around the room, just checking to see if we have some questions in the room first. Um, so I see a gentleman uh, over here and then in the back. Yeah.
3: Go, sir. Oh, Hi, my name is Jerry Kays, a research engineer. And uh, just curious, I uh, look forward to reading your book. And uh, I think as a person that has kind of gone through the K through 12 to higher education and additional training in the STEM fields, I've seen how technology uh, took me in a certain path and now it's kind of now transformed to uh, a tech economy. Um, I did a TED talk about the difference between technology and tech, but I'm just curious about your thoughts about uh, how you think people will show up in, in what is the unregulated AI world now it seems like we have the opportunity to hit a lot of these features of your book but then there's still uh, some workforce development issues trying to get people excited about wanting to even participate with the emerging technologies
1: absolutely i mean i think that's that's a important point and you know in terms of ai i guess a lot of people predict sort of widespread unemployment um just an acceleration of deindustrialization that we've already seen more offshoring, um, you know. I was just at a conference where some economists were arguing that this has been pretty overstated that AI could create a lot of jobs. I think my my sense is that the verdict is kind of still out. But to your point on like training and excitement, I mean, I, I absolutely think that's important and. I guess the thing that comes closest sort of from within the book to addressing that would be something like a federal version of a job guarantee where, you know, if you have a set of needs that for whatever reason we're not going to turn over to AI, a lot of this has to do with care work, right? For young people, maybe for old people, um, it just doesn't feel the same to like have a machine staring into the eyes of your toddler, right? Um, (laughs) I think these sorts of care work things that already private markets are not doing a very good job of sort of marshaling the requisite number of humans and treating those humans well enough to, to do this work. I think a federal job guarantee is like a compelling example of how um, it, could, it could one, you know, just meet some pretty fundamental needs, but two, it could also put real upward pressure on private sector employers. If I know I have an outside option, making $30 an hour, um, co-designing Engaging work, um, then maybe we might see an even more dramatic sort of version of the great resignation where it's like private s- sector employers really do have to make the jobs more meaningful and better paid. And this could very quickly get us to something more like a real living wage, I think. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks.
3: Oh. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Barber from Integrative Strategies Forum, the NGO here. Um, We've been following the the Global Plastics Treaty negotiations. And in that language, the trade unions made sure to bring in the concept of just transition, which is also there in the Paris agreements. Mm. And um, since that's a transition, there's this question of transition to what? Mm. And uh, the UN Environment Program has said, oh, transition to a circular economy. Mm-hmm. whereas um there's other definitions or, or other ideas of the of where we're going which is like a post fossil fuel economy so there's a lot of conflict there and i'm wondering uh how you thinking about the just economy fits or clashes with I- any of these uh, of this this uh kind of discourse that's going on in this this particular
1: policy realm of just transitions yeah thank you for that um you know there, there are a lot of these terms and labels, and many of them become sort of books and TED talks, and and it can be hard to know like what people mean. I think there's a lot of agreement on, you know, like, like you mentioned, circular economy, um, just transition. I, I think a lot of these things are all broadly speaking pushing and pulling in the same direction. You know, the. The true price material, I I guess that has a pretty direct implication for some of the planetary boundary and climate issues. I think if what we're currently just not pricing into global supply chains, we're just letting these costs kind of accrue for future generations or just for current generations somewhere else, and increasingly even here, right, if those remain unpriced, I think, that's sort of the opposite of what we want to get to a just transition. Now, true pricing alone is probably not adequate, certainly not without legislation to get us to that transition. And then what, what it looks like beyond that, people like to sort of pit job guarantee versus universal basic income or guaranteed income sometimes as like, like rival claimants to the title of ideal post-transition safety net. Um, I I think they sort of work in concert. They solve for slightly different things. I mean, like Maureen mentioned, there's this sort of rich set of psychological benefits that seem to be observable when people get to participate in designing meaningful work. Um, That being said, I mean, there are other people who would argue that that just reflects a kind of previous socialization whereby we're taught to think that everyone needs a job and that kind of with a sufficiently... Um, you know, capacious vision of what a good life is, people would actually be fine with a UBI doing exactly what they want all day, every day. I don't kind of have a strong view on that, except that I think both of them are probably worth studying more, and both are important parts of a post-transition economy.
0: Yeah, Um, I'll I'll just add on that point. and uh, we did also have a question about guaranteed income that was sent ahead of time. And I'm going to be welcoming Natalie Foster here in May to talk about her new book, The Guarantee. So, um, so come back for that if you're interested in that question. Jeannie, do you have some questions from our online audience?
2: Yes, I have a few questions from our online audience. Uh, our first question, does the full price concept take profit into consideration? What's the reasonable profit margin that is acceptable? Similar question about CEO pay.
1: Yeah, so I I don't think they have a kind of categorical definition of like X percent is is reasonable and beyond that it's profiteering or gouging. Um, I I think broadly there's like an interesting reframing that actually um, dates back to some of the people who were first writing about living wages where just like the definition of a successful company is one in which you are treating humans and the environment decently. Like if you're, that's kind of the floor. Like if you're not doing that, you're not succeeding, you're just kind of successfully cheating, right? You're (laughs) externalizing costs to other people, places, times, and like you can do that in the current economy and it's often lauded as success, included by large parts of the media, unfortunately, but um, it's a sort of conceptual shift where this is just sort of a new standard for success. If you're abiding by those standards, you know, then profit for a company, compensation for a CEO, I think they're a little agnostic on that. I could be wrong. I mean, one other thing that I talk a lot about in the book is the Mondragon cooperatives in northern Spain where they actually have quite explicitly and by design a cap of highest to lowest paid worker pay. So it's six to one within the co-ops. Many of them have an even lower ratio. Um, So I'm happy to talk more about sort of how that works for them, the justification, but that also actually matches with international psychological research that if you ask people what they think the ideal pay ratios should be, like if you just kind of take a universal human uh, intuition about what's a fair ratio, it's pretty close to the six to seven to one. There, are, there is variation across cultures, which is interesting, but a lot kind of conf- converges on that figure. So I think Mondragon is interesting because it's yeah. this kind of place where what people want is actually what exists, <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, imagine. Uh- <laughs>
3: yeah I think there's a question right here. Hi I'm Ken Meyercourt. Um, is faith in the continuous uh, in continuous economic growth a question of economics or philosophy? and philosophy in the widest sense, including morality, even even religion?
1: thank you that's that's a wonderful question. I mean, I think it is a question for philosophy and Given my concept of economics, I think it's also a question for for economics, which is kind of a subfield of political philosophy. Um, you know, the sort of degrowth versus green growth, um, relative versus absolute decoupling debates, I, I don't go particularly into those in the book. I, I think they're very interesting. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to sort of speak off the cuff on those, but I, I don't have a strong – I don't know, I guess it's a sort of – it's also a question of, like, the plausibility of a certain kind of futurism, right, where the the kind of – the standard objection to the green growth is, like, you're being technologically utopian. You're just saying that we're we're going to engineer our way out of it, we're going to have miraculous advances such that we don't actually need to change our consumption habits. We can – Preserve the planet, consume just as much as we currently are, and the way that will happen is through unleashing innovation. And you know, it's kind of hard to disprove a claim about the future until we get there. But it could also be very much too late if that claim turns out to be wrong. Um, on the other hand, right, like the sort of the critics of the the um, the degrowth, right, the champions of green growth. They say, well look, you're accusing us of technological utopianism, but you guys are being politically utopian. You're never going to sell a movement called degrowth, (laughs) right? Like Paul Samuelson has his teeth too far into the psyche of not just Americans, but people around the world. People associate degrowth with sort of depression, declining living standards. To what extent this can be solved through different rhetorical framings? Um, That's an interesting question. I mean, people have written about that Circular economy, donut economics there are I think other framings available to people who are concerned about planetary boundaries and perhaps a little skeptical of strong versions of green growth um, but I, I don't go too deep into that in the book, so yeah.
0: yeah I think that's also interesting, and we had a session a few years ago looking at sort of how we measure growth and you know what actually counts as contributing to economic growth versus what should count you know if you think about you know, sort of pollution and then cleaning it up and that both counts as growth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, sort of problems with that as well as sort of like growth, we always say like it'll lead to rising living standards and yet the distribution of the gains of growth is so so difficult. Anyway, we had a interesting conversation with Heather Boucher before she was at the Council of Economic Advisors. So um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, I think that's an interesting question. Um, So Finney, back to you and then we'll come over here.
2: Great, Um, so I'm gonna ask few online questions just all at once um <laughs> so uh one question we have is actually from natalie foster uh who asked what was the best part and the hardest part of writing the book um another question is what are what is the role of investors what recommendations do you have for them and question three what are three things to teach in an undergrad macroeconomics course
1: <laughs> oh. okay thanks for thanks for those questions natalie um uh, <laughs> Let's see if I can remember them. So best and hardest things in reporting the book was the first Writing one. Writing yeah. Um, I'd say the best thing was spending time in the Basque country of northern Spain with, with the Mondragon folks. Um, naturally beautiful, culturally compelling. Um, I highly recommend a visit. <laughs> uh, the hard, hardest thing, you know, it's it's hard to sort of strike some of these rhetorical balances that we were talking about at the beginning between sort of data and narrative, right? I mean, the goal of the book is to give a lot of people a way in, so you kind of, you want to speak to people who have a very quantitative analytical mindset. You also want to speak to people who just have like a very strong and accurate sense that like the economy is really not working and how could it? Mm -hmm. So that was like, that was a challenge. I mean, I think I, I worked a lot with a lot of skillful editors, a lot of <laughs> skillful readers, to sort of try to find the right balance there. Um, that's, a, that's a challenge though. Um, what was the second question, sorry, from Natalie? The
2: question was, what is the role of investors? What yeah. recommendations do you have for investors?
1: Yeah, so that's actually an entire chapter in the book. It's the, the last chapter of the book. Um, I talk a lot about investment strategies that are trying to decrease wealth inequalities. Broadly speaking, the strategy involves getting a lot of capital, buying businesses at the point of transition, and then converting them into some worker ownership model. Um, So you can have different focuses, different funds have a lot of different approaches. Everyone I spoke to for that chapter, people raising a lot of money, all of them said, oh yeah, if our fund was 10 times as large, we could execute on it tomorrow. There are a huge number of businesses that are on the point of transition in America. If all of those businesses were giving workers equity, you could actually go quite a ways towards creating a, a more robust middle class. I mean, I think a lot of people have observed that wage growth alone, however important and necessary it is to have a more expansive living wage definition, it's just it's unlikely to get people the kind of $300,000, $400,000 chunks of capital that would enable home ownership, um, funding a lot of education for kids, etc. Worker equity can accumulate those kinds of major intergenerational wealth building chunks of capital. That would be my advice for investors, is to pursue those strategies. A lot of great funds doing that, but they could use a lot more money. (laughs) What was the third question? Sorry. (laughs)
2: Uh, Our final online question is, what are three things to teach in an undergrad macroeconomics course? Yeah.
1: You know, I, I think you kind of need four at least. And I, I, like, that. <laughs> I, I like that list from, from John Maynard Keynes where, you know, he says, mathematician, historian, statesman, and philosopher. Um, for each of those things, you know, you can imagine. I, I, I tell a little anecdote in the book which, which struck me as very revealing where um, someone who, who gets a PhD at a very prestigious school recalls an incredibly technically proficient and brilliant colleague who has never heard of Adam Smith, Karl Marx, John Stuart Mill, any of the major figures in the history of economic thought. I think teaching economics in a way that ignores that tends to align with defending the the status quo and the kind of like what Julie Nelson has written about where she talks about the kind of physics imitating mode of economics. Um, So I think taking those those Keynes elements seriously and building a curriculum around those would be a great way to start. And I should mention that the core econ curriculum, which I've written about in both the book and, and for the New Yorker, I think they're going some distance in that direction. And I'm I'm pretty sympathetic to the, the textbook that they're
0: promoting now. Yeah. The gentleman right here in the green shirt.
2: Sure. Thanks so much for, for being with us today. Uh, just a quick question, similar to the investor one, and then policy. I'm curious if there's a few examples you could provide on, you know, actionable uh, steps that either businesses can take or folks who don't have access to, you know, large sums of capital. You know, I think a lot of the recommendations I've historically heard have to do with policy, um, or or with you know, raising a ton of capital and investing in, in you know, more sustainable or equitable uh, businesses or funds, what, what other things that aren't so massive at scale, like policy or investment funds do, would you provide?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so for folks who are not kind of pulling the levers of policy or enormous institutional capital, um, for most of us, I think, you know, (laughs) two, two, two models come right to mind. Um, I write about participatory budgeting, this is something that is, is pretty well established in Europe, although there's a lot of variation in how it's executed. But the basic concept is a sort of direct democratic process where citizens have considerable say over how, again, a considerable chunk of the municipal budget is spent every year. It wouldn't have to be municipal. It could be state or even national. Um, I talk about a case study outside of Lisbon in Portugal where, you know, these are pretty major projects, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but anyone can vote on them, right? Like, including middle schoolers. They're like, the high schoolers can sort of lobby their friends for a skate park. Um, the senior citizens can lobby for like a new senior center. Um, it's, it's interesting also because the mayor of this town is, is a kind of center-right politician, and yet he's found that it's just it's wildly popular. It, can, it keeps him in office. Um, it has better turnout than elective Democracies. A sort of participatory democracy is very popular if you let people do it. In America, there are these sort of superficial versions of PB in a lot of places, but they tend to spend very, very small amounts of money in very, very restricted ways. I think sort of leaning on people in your town, mayor, city council, to implement robust PB, um, that's one thing. You know, I think um, as much as I, I I I sort of hate to present this as a complete solution. I do think there is some value in like supporting businesses that pay living wages, like real living wages. Supporting businesses that are worker-owned. Supporting, you know, businesses that are doing the right thing. I, I don't think the kind of consumer model of reforming capitalism is is sufficient, but I do think it's it's not a bad idea, and it is unfortunately one of the few things that we, all of us, like do make these decisions every day. Right about like what to buy, um, so I hope that helps a little <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: great, yeah. so last question for you, you know, I mentioned and 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 this is kind of a nice segue into it, um you know a lot of folks in in our audience they work on these issues they do lots of things in different communities across the country whether they're doing workforce development or community development finance or whatever they might be doing there you know we have lots of doers of, of various types um, who care deeply about these issues of economic justice so any final words of advice encouragement um, for them as as uh, they think about that work
1: yeah absolutely um, so I mean maybe on the assumption that these are more of the folks making kind of policy and major capital allocation decisions.
0: Some of them. <laughs> and
1: I guess a, a few things come to mind. You know, on the policy front, I I find the prospect of like a federal job guarantee very compelling. Um, could seem far-fetched. Then again, if you think back even six years, I think a lot of the, the major legislative acts of, of the Biden administration would have seemed pretty uh, implausible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, especially with with AI, as one of our other questions mentioned. It's, it's it's just a little hard to say. I think a federal job guarantee is one policy thing. Another policy thing that comes to mind would be just updating the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage in America. <laughs> I mean, I think at a minimum, right, that could, the what's sort of now called the living wage could shift to the minimum wage, which would then open up a new space for a real living wage, right? <laughs> um, you know, in the UK, it's like, a pretty acute like verbal arms race because they call the minimum wage a living wage. So then people wanting to increase it have to say like the real or the true living wage. And then people who say, no, no, it doesn't go far enough. It's like the real, real living wage, it (laughs) it gets absurd, right? How do you puncture through that? But I think that's a reasonable policy objective. A final thing, which is like a little wonky, but very impactful is both state and federal legislation to make employee ownership more widespread. Employee ownership is a bipartisan issue. The Work Act um, was sponsored by Republican and Democratic lawmakers alike. Um, The California Employee Ownership Act in in 2022 had a very big tent coalition behind it. So there are a lot of people who can get on board with employee ownership and it really can lead to substantial capital accumulation. Um, That being said, like the details matter it's important to get sort of more capital to finance those transitions so that the people on the point of retiring are not necessarily taking a lower than market offer, right? Like if there's more capital that's made available and there's um, some national legislation pending to this effect that would unleash funds from like the SBA, SBIC, um, that seems like a very compelling capital goal. And then I guess the fourth thing, which is, is is not so much policy as just what to do with money if you have a lot of it. It it kind of gets back to the investment question from earlier. Every single fund manager I spoke to who has a fund and is going around converting businesses into worker ownership models, all of them need more money. Um, now there there are challenges. There are fiduciary sort of obligations that pension fund managers take very seriously, I mean, there are, are challenges, but I, I think making your thesis as, as like a fund manager, the decrease of wealth inequality is, is, is pretty compelling, right? We typically think of like private equities, like those are the people who are increasing wealth inequality. So, I mean, and for that not to be like manipulated is important, I get into all this more in the book, but those are some quick suggestions.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here today. Um, uh, for those of you who know our work, I did not pay him to go on about employee ownership, but we are having our second Employee Ownership Ideas Forum April 9th and 10th. If you're interested in that topic, um, hope you'll be able to join us then. Um, also, I had a question uh, submitted online about how food systems can play a role in a just economy and just wanted to mention that we're going to be doing a three-part series looking at food systems work and our next event uh, will be Job Quality in the Fields, Improving Farm Work in the U.S. on February 28th. So hope you all can, can join us to that. Um, thank you all so much for your questions and for being here today. I really also, uh, very much want to thank Nick for joining us. I uh, want to thank my colleagues who do uh, such a fabulous job organizing these events, Matt Helmer, Tony Mastria, Nora Heffernan, Amanda Fins, Maya Smith, Francis Almodavar, Bryn Morgan, Maxwell Johnson, Sean Young, Colleen Cunningham. There's a lot of them working on this. So they deserve a big round of applause. Um, and also thanks to our Aspen Institute AV colleagues and building services teams for helping us. Um, you're sticking around to sign books, so books are for sale. Um, we can also have book signing, so hope you'll join us for that as well. Thank you all so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.